I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. All hey, right, all right. Hi, hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing, you know, luckily podcasting makes me feel better. Uh, we are recording our mini and our full episode in one night again tonight, and we are actually recording on a Wednesday, which we probably should have said in the mini episode just oh, to say yeah. that more news could happen between now and Friday. But um, we're, a- again, doing a back-to-back recording night, so we are getting down to it, and... Yeah, it feels weird asking you how you are when literally I just asked you how you are. But I appreciate it because it's changed. (laughs) I mean, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel I always feel better once I have something else to focus on, something else to, you know, put my energy towards. So already feeling a bit better. I am also very ready to talk about something that is just good, innocent, pure fun. And that is Disney. I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard for me to do my notes this week. And I think it's because it was just such a juxtaposition between like how I was feeling and like doing notes about like something kind of like happy and sweet was like, I don't know, it was just kind of like a mind fuck for me. It's it's funny for me because the character that I chose is from probably one of the darkest Disney movies ever. Um, I didn't even watch the movie actually again. I've seen it so many times. I have it practically memorized in my head, and I just kind of like Hunchback went through of Notre it. Dame? Yes, 
Yeah, and like I, that's the darkest Disney movie of all time. Yeah, and, and it's one of my favorite movies of all same. time. Same. Well, funnily enough, so background to why I chose Esmeralda here. So I was between Esmeralda and Meg because those were my babes since I was little. I had a Meg dress that I wore all the time, but I had two Esmeralda dresses. I had her like day clothes Esmeralda dress that I had as like a... I had like a nightgown and I had another kind of just like day dress that looked like that. But then I had a dress up costume that was the red dress with the purple sash. And there's pictures I wore as a kid. I didn't wear like regular clothes to preschool or in my daily life. I would typically dress as a character. So I'd be Matilda or Dorothy or Esmeralda or Meg. And so those were always my two favorite and... I've always just had a kinship with Esmeralda. I just love her. Yes. Uh, I had the Esmeralda, the outfit that she's in in the very first scene with the sash with the like yep. coins on it. Oh my God. Uh, do we have the same dress? Probably. Yeah. I, my mom bought me that like costume, like yeah. the, the Halloween costume. And I wore that thing all the time. Yeah. All the time. Oh, God. there's pictures of me and I grew up with this girl, Ivory, and we would both always like match when we'd go places. Mm-hmm. And there's pictures of us going to like some county fair and we're both wearing our Esmeralda dresses at this fair with like hot dogs and mustard on our faces. But Adorable. we're like pretty princess dresses. <laughs> so and I actually um, during this research, so I'm Also kind of doing like a lot of genealogy stuff with my family during this time. I signed up for one of those websites where I can kind of go back as far as people have posted. Like Ancestry. Yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I, and I'm only using this slur term because this is what my mom says. My mom always told me that we're gypsies. And so, and I know that my family comes from Bohemia and all this kind of stuff. So literally right before I texted her, because I've been doing a lot of reading on the Roma people, I was like, are we Roma? And she's like, yeah, you didn't know that? (laughs) So, but this is what's interesting. Let's talk about Esmeralda before Disney. So Victor Hugo wrote the original book, and Esmeralda was actually like the daughter of this like minstrel woman who was like not seen very highly in the community and you know had to do sex work to get by and all of these things and she had this like bastard child that's Esmeralda um, whose name was actually Agnes when she was born but the thing is, is that Agnes was like the most beautiful baby in the world which made everyone in the town kind of forget that they hated the mom and <laughs> like started loving this baby right so one night the baby is kidnapped by a group of Roma people. And they leave in the baby's place a deformed baby that is Quasimodo. So that's one part of the story. Um, The other part, so after that, they say, in her despair, the mother flees the city and the baby Quasimodo is exercised and sent to Paris and sent to Paris to live with Frollo in Notre Dame. Ah, humans. We're the best. The best. So in Victor Hugo's novel, Esmeralda is 16. Uh, Just like in the Disney movie, she is a street dancer. She has a pet goat. Uh, she does tricks with her tambourines and she's seen as kind of being this like 
magical witch figure, which actually kind of becomes her downfall. And really, her biggest downfall in her story are the men that fucking ruin it. Shocking. I'm so surprised by that. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the Esmeralda that we know from Disney. So... She is, she's always kind of been portrayed as this like epitome of femininity. Before the Disney movie, there have been films like back to the early 1900s, like silent films. Um, Selma Hayek actually played Esmeralda in a movie, I think that came out the year after the Disney movie that just like didn't. did not know that. Yeah. So. A little weird for her to be playing like a French Roma (laughs) character. Yeah. Oh, so that was the thing. So they say that, like, this Agnes slash Esmeralda was not a Roma person. Um, but in the Disney movie, they they still portray her as such. You know, they portray her as having, you know, darker skin and darker features. But the thing with Victor Hugo's novel is that, you know, you're supposed to think that she is this, you know, the one pretty Roma person out of them all, and she's uh-huh, just because special. she's white. Yes, right. But actually, she's not Roma at all, and that's why she was special the whole time. You know what I mean? So it's a very racist uh, depiction of Roma people. He, you know, describes them as being ugly, and you know, the children would even frighten an ape. Like just cruel, cruel. Uh, Very stereotypical, awful things about the Roma people. Um, And then on the other side of that, they were also heavily sexualized, which Esmeralda very much is in the Disney movie, but I think it's actually for a good point. So Esmeralda, I feel, isn't really faulted for her sensuality or her sexuality except for by... Claude Frollo, who is the judge or the justice, what is it, the judge of justice or whatever he is. I can't remember what his actual title is. I'm not even looking at my notes right now. I'm just talking, so I'm all (laughs) over the place. Um, But he's the only one that, you know, sees her, you know, sexiness, I guess, as being this downfall because he is attracted to her um also in the beginning of the movie we see phoebus who is this soldier who is coming to assist frollo in ridding the rome uh ridding paris of the roma people and you know he kind of catches esmeralda's eye so she's now got two guys that are kind of falling all over her and then of course we meet the you know star of the film quasimodo and who is obviously trapped in Notre Dame, and he can finally go to the Festival of Fools, and he's so excited. So, you know why? Because I was on the wrong page of notes. I was like, I'm just going to start talking because I can't see anything that I'm talking about right now. (laughs) Now I'm on the right page. Okay, so it's Topsy Turvy Day, which I loved that song so much when I was little. I don't think Anthony's ever seen hunchback of notre dame so what we need to watch it it's just anytime i try and like he's he'd never seen mulan either and i tried to make him watch it and he fell asleep and um i don't know if i can deal with that kind of rejection again of something that is awesome and so like it was instrumental to my childhood yeah and he just falls asleep i i Totally don't blame you. There's nothing worse than showing someone you love something that you love and they don't love it. Like, yes, Max I does know. not love Hamilton. Max does not love the Newsies and some of those movies for me that I just, like, wish I could watch all the time. Yeah. 
and I just have to accept it. Um, so apologies, because now I know where I am in my notes. I'm going to backtrack just a second to when she meets Phoebus, because that's kind of like the opening to when we meet Esmeralda. We see her, you know, dancing with her tambourine and her little pet goat. And all of a sudden, these, you know, guards come out of nowhere and she, you know, grabs her bag of coins. And these two men, you know, stop her and start, start harassing her, um, trying to take her money, saying, you know, gypsies don't earn money they steal money things like that and phoebus kind of watches this whole thing and esmeralda is able to escape and then phoebus kind of embarrasses these guards which i think kind of warms esmeralda's heart to him a bit and he literally is like a white knight you know well, role in this yes, character He's yeah i mean quite literally literally yeah, yeah you um, know white blonde haired blue-eyed chiseled warrior with man. armor on yes yeah i I will say, like, having spent some time in Romania, the mistreatment of the Roma people and the racism towards them is, like, this example, it's not hyperbolic in no. any way. Like, it's, it's very real. And in a way, I think that, you know, we're talking about non-problematic Disney faves. And in a way, I think that this movie brought a lot of like light to my little baby social justice heart because that's everything that that she is and while Quasimodo is the main character of the story I would have to argue that the thing that you're most invested in is whether or not Esmeralda is going to survive and save her people yes you know and that's just her character well I think she's the most active like, she has the most clear objective. Because, yeah. okay, I haven't watched a Hunchback of Notre Dame in a while. But I, I, it's hard for me, except for, like, leaving the... Managing to get out of the cathedral or um, save Esmeralda. There's not a clear-cut objective in my mind for Quasimodo. Whereas yeah. Esmeralda had a very clear objective and vision yeah. um, throughout. So, I mean, she's probably the most active, motivated character in the movie to me. Yeah. I, and she's most definitely, I would say, the most like fully formed character in the movie. I, it should have been her movie, honestly, you know. So we're back to Topsy Turvy Day and Quasimodo first runs into Esmeralda, goes into her dressing room and she's like totally cool with it. Like she's like covering up with a robe and is worried about whether or not he's okay. And as he's leaving, she uh, compliments him on his mask, thinking that he's actually wearing a mask. And of course, Quasimodo is smitten. It is love at first sight or lust at first sight, whatever you want to call it. He's like, this chick is hot. Um, he goes back into the celebration and all of a sudden Esmeralda reappears in this puff of colorful smoke wearing that gorgeous red off the shoulder ensemble we just described earlier. And she starts dancing and you see Phoebus's eyes widen. You see Frollo's eyes widen. And then you see Quasimodo kind of shy away. And I had to pause for a second and just like take that in and be like, this is the entire plot of the film right here. It's just, it's jealousy over this woman. It's wanting possession of this woman who really wants nothing to do with any of you. Like she wants to live and survive. That's what she's doing. And it was that moment in each of the men where you saw their different reactions to 
this woman behaving in a way that probably wasn't very typical of like a Parisian woman to act during this time. You know, she's dancing, she's not wearing as much clothes. It reminds me a lot of people who like to criticize sex workers. Yeah. While still going to strip clubs or watching porn where it's like, I mean, and that's, it's not the same because I, I wouldn't classify Esmeralda as a sex worker, but it is kind of the same in that like you, these people exist in our society to fulfill a need that our society has um, or a desire that our society has. And then they are ostracized (laughs) for fulfilling that need or desire. It's like wild. Well, and the thing that is so intense about this movie and especially as a children's movie is the idea of like sin is such a major theme in this movie. And especially through the eyes of Frollo, you know, you start to see that he ha- he starts having these sexual desires, but he is supposed to be this very pious man. And he uh, begins to hate Esmeralda because she makes him feel that way. And that's a very real, very scary thing that women have to experience all the time. I think back to, what was his name, Elliot... Mm -hmm. The Santa Barbara killer who, you know, had this idea in his head that, you know, because women didn't want him, you know, that gave him the right to kill them. And there was something, you know, seeing that in Frollo, you know, she makes me feel this certain way that I have been taught is wrong. So she's the problem. She's making me feel this way instead of taking the, you know, you need to take responsibility. I I say this a lot because I have a friend who's like a business psychologist and she said this to me and it really stuck with me. It's that we also need to get out of the habit just in general as a society of saying they made me feel this way. Yeah, because they may have done something that provoked a feeling in you, but the feeling is yours. And you have to own that. Like, Frollo needs to own his feelings. Esmeralda didn't make you feel that way. You're feeling this way. Maybe investigate that. Yeah. And if it's something, and honestly, like, that's the thing. If you're such a pious man going to church, go talk to your pastor about it. Go talk to your priest about it. Pray on it. Pray on it, dude. Whatever. But he doesn't. He already is, like, hell-bent on ridding the city of the Roma people. After, you know, Esmeralda seeing her, you know, being sexy, that idea is obviously even more enticing to him. And then Quasimodo is, of course, crowned the King of Fools, which at first is this great celebration. You know, they discover that he's not wearing a mask. He's, you know, the bell ringer at Notre Dame and they still celebrate him. And then all of a sudden the guards start, you know, throwing tomatoes at him. And I don't know about you, Keegan, but this scene to this day is really hard for me to watch, especially because the tomatoes being animated look like blood. Yeah. And he's like being, he's like tied to the stage Mm -hmm. and they're just like throwing things at him. It's cruel. It's cruelty. It's so hard to watch. And... Esmeralda, bless her heart, goes up there and shows Quasimodo this real love and human moment of helping him and tries to get everybody to stop. Uh, Even Frollo tries to tell her to stop and she defies him. And this is when she says the best thing in the whole film. She says, you mistreat this poor boy the same way you mistreat my people. You speak of justice, yet you are cruel to those most in need of your help. 
Frollo says, silence. Esmeralda says, justice, and raises her fist in the air. And it's so good. A widely used meme in 2020. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, Frollo sends the guards after her, and she then disappears into a cloud of smoke and hides away, and this whole chase kind of ensues. And again, she humiliates Frollo. She humiliates this man in power, and she escapes into the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And while she's in there, she sees Phoebus, and this is like little meat cute. And she's, you know, thinking he's there to, you know, take her, but he's really kind of flirting with her, and it's tense or whatever. And he is the one that tells her to claim sanctuary in the cathedral to remain safe from Frollo. Oh, and then when he does, this is the other part that's like so creepy to me. Frollo is just like the biggest creep of all time oh yeah the scariest song of all time yeah the scariest song of all time hellfire yeah Yeah. but when he goes up to her and like after she's claimed sanctuary he like goes behind her and like grabs her by the arms and is like talking right into her ear and then he like sniffs her hair and she's like what are you doing and he said i was just imagining a rope around that beautiful neck and she says, I know what you were imagining. It's just so, oh, it's so creepy. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what makes him so scary. Like, he might be the most terrifying Disney villain only because he's the most realistic Disney villain, in my opinion, unless I'm, you know, not thinking of someone. But we all know people like this. This is a situation that very much happens uh, yeah. to people daily you know there are people in our lives who are like this exactly Uh, it's just such an entitled you know mindset and such you know again the thing that is most heartbreaking to me about Esmeralda is just the way that she's used and objectified by all of the men around her and this is the most like outwardly creepy objectification um I'm gonna get into how I feel about Quasimodo in a little bit but right now I want to get into probably one of the most beautiful Disney songs. And there's so many. Like, I, I'm always going to love Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas and, you know, so many more. But God Bless the Outcast mm-hmm. is such a stunning song. I am going to just read the lyrics really quick because they are so beautiful. All right. God help the outcasts, hungry from birth. Show them mercy they don't find on earth. God help my people. We look to you still. God help the outcasts, or nobody will. I ask for wealth. I ask for fame. I ask for glory to shine on my name. I ask for love I can possess. I ask for God and his angels to bless me. I ask for nothing. I can get by, but I know so many less lucky than I. Please help my people, the poor and downtrod. I thought we all were the children of God. God help the outcasts, children of God. We sang that in my middle school choir. Did you? (laughs) Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. It's such a great song for children to hear. And it's something that I did. You know, it was pretty when I was younger, but I don't think I really understood what she was saying. And it's it really shows even in Victor Hugo's novel, it shows that Esmeralda's character, you know, through and through is this pure kindness and generosity and I love that she was able to have a song like this that just seems so right, so well, fitting to so many situations in life. It also demonstrates to me, like, it's, it's timely even now because yeah. it demonstrates to me, like, you know, you have these 
for people who haven't seen the movie or seen, you know, the video of the song or heard it, the the characters that are saying, like, I ask for wealth, I ask for fame, I ask for love, like, these are not, those aren't Esmeralda. Those are yeah. people kind of on on the side praying and asking for things. And I think it demonstrates so clearly how when you are a part of a oppressed, marginalized community, you like oftentimes your wants are for the collective. You don't have necessarily the same kind of privilege to, to me, it kind of says that where it's like, you don't have the same kind of privilege to be like, I want this thing for myself. It's like, I need to save my people, my community. And that's the thing is she's even saying like, I can get by and she really can't. Like she is trapped in a church right now, a place, God, I don't want to be trapped in a church. (laughs) And she has nothing. Like she, has to work so hard to get by yet she still says there are some you know less luckier than less lucky than I that I have to pray for that I have to help and that's something that's just her empathy is so beautiful and so important I feel like for kids to watch although I feel like most kids these days would be way too scared of this movie to watch it well I don't know I mean I couldn't get to watch it or more sensitive than when we were kids I don't know they are they are for sure T won't watch anything sad He won't watch anything when it, like, gets dark. Like, I think the first scene of this movie would turn him away. He wouldn't handle it. I know. Well, he's also, like, super sensitive. But I've seen it in a few other kids, too, where, like, I just think they make movies a little bit cheesier and kiddish these days. There aren't as many, like, intense topics. Like, this is super intense. And I was obsessed with this movie as a kid. Well, it's a kid's movie that's made... I mean, I really feel like it's made for adults. Like, if if last time I watched it was a few years ago, and um, some of the jokes are for adults. Like, they go straight over kids' heads. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, now I am going to talk a little bit about how I feel about Quasimodo. So, like I said, when he first, you know, meets her and sees her dance, he is, like, immediately smitten with her and in love with her and wants nothing more than to have her. Well, lucky for him, she is now trapped in the cathedral and she can only hang out with you. There's no one else. Nice. What a great Um, message to send lonely young men. Exactly. And that's the thing is it shows this and Quasimodo is a good guy you know he's just he's been treated horribly he's been trapped in this bell tower his whole life he's got no social skills no social skills and he doesn't have a traditionally attractive face you know life is hard for Quasimodo so I completely understand but he puts her on this pedestal and just like cherishes her so that is just uncomfortable for me to watch as an adult and when I was a kid I remember getting very upset that she would end up with Phoebus like he's barely in the movie what are you talking about why wouldn't she end up with her like friend Quasimodo it's kind of shitty that she had to end up with anybody to be honest like that was the way that Disney movies were back then you know yeah and Phoebus is a character in the original story and there's another character as well. Like there's like even more men in the original story that are like trying mm, to ruin her Because that's life. what we need. Yeah, exactly. In this more story, you men. know what this story needs? More men in it. Yep. There's more only men. one real female character to speak of, but we need more dudes. <laughs> and we need more dudes to ruin her life. So, you know, we see Quasimodo really kind of putting her up on this pedestal and falling more and more in love with her. Um... Next up in the movie is that god-awful, creepy-ass song, Hellfire. Do you, 
For those of you have, who have not seen this scene, I didn't write the lyrics down because it doesn't work with my narrative right now talking about Esmeralda, but it is a horrifying movie or a horrifying scene, essentially blaming Esmeralda again for the way that he's feeling and uh, yeah, his anger I, I, is growing and growing for the Roma people and for Esmeralda and it's horrifying he's basically saying if he can't have her he's going to destroy her like yeah. that's basically the gist of the song is like he's so horny that yeah. he doesn't know what to do with his horny feelings so if he doesn't get to have esmeralda nobody does it's very incel it's very incel, the OG incel, Mr. Frollo. So, of course, after that, he's riled up. He's finished his manifesto song. So he's out to start burning <laughs> down some, some Roma homes. And he orders Phoebus to do this, and Phoebus refuses. So Frollo burns down a home instead, and Phoebus goes in and saves a family, which Esmeralda, um, during this time, had escaped the cathedral and seen this happen. Uh, saw him getting shot off of a bridge. Luckily, he survives. Again, Esmeralda kind of saves the day. Like, she's the one that kind of always gets these guys out of trouble. She distracted a horse while they were um, going to aim for Phoebus, so he missed and mm-hmm. saved Phoebus's life. So, thanks, Esmeralda. So, then to save him, Esmeralda takes Phoebus back to Notre Dame and Quasimodo is not too happy that she has brought Phoebus back with her and All she's of these like people need therapy I'm I like, know Jesus everybody yeah. calm down like the man is hurt and needs to be hidden both of them need to be hidden and he's kind of looking her at her like really you really want me to hide this fuck boy here okay for you whatever so you know phoebus kind of lays down and esmeralda starts taking care of him and that's when they kiss and quasimodo looks super sad and heartbroken and he's he's holding an ace of hearts that he tears in half because his heart is so broken I mean, sorry, you do, I just you have do no feel patience for, him. for this stuff. You do feel for him, though. Like, y- you get it. It's like he's isolated. In, yes. This is the only woman who's shown him kindness. And the only you person know? who's shown him kindness. Like, I totally get it. But there's something to me that's also just like, I think that the idea that I wanted Quasimodo to end up with Esmeralda is problematic. You know what I mean? Oh, so for sure. To me, yeah. the, and it wasn't just like, oh, Quasimodo looks bummed. It's like a very, like he is watching them make out, rips a card, like an ace of hearts in half. Like it's just a very, like I wish that there would be a healthier portrayal of what to do when a woman turns you down. Well, Particularly I mean, in, Quasi, in this movie. Quasimodo is like, he is that guy that we have all dated that we're like, I can fix you. You know what I mean? Like that, that's Quasimodo where we're like, I can fix him. Yes. He's had a traumatic childhood that he has gotten literally no help for. And he's treating me like both a girlfriend and a mommy figure because he's never felt love or affection before. Right. But I can fix him. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, Um, what's so sweet about Esmeralda is like, it almost seems like a caretaker position. Like she is his friend, but she's very much like very patient with him, very kind, very nurturing. And I completely, 
really, I know what that looks like. And I've heard so many stories of men taking that the wrong way and having very violent reactions to that. So I'm just, I'm sensitive to it. And I know Quasimodo is not a violent person, but I'm just kind of, I just wish that that narrative wasn't pushed so much. I wish that he could see that she was happy with him. And while maybe wasn't so pleased that it wasn't him that she was in love with, you know, and yeah, but they that's do human nature, you know, I get it. And they the guys end up working together. So Esmeralda leaves because she wants to save her people. And so Quasimodo and Phoebus are like, we're going to go help her. We're going to go find her. And they get captured by the Roma people and are sentenced to hang. And I haven't really talked about the narrator at all through this, but like he's the best part of the damn movie besides Esmeralda. He's so funny. And so as they're getting ready to hang um, Quasimodo and Phoebus, of course, Esmeralda saves the day again, comes in, says that, you know, they're not spies. They're here to help us. They're here to save me. And they, she also warns her people of Frollo's plan to completely burn down all of their homes. Um... So Esmeralda and Phoebus are like about to go and, you know, fight Frollo. And Phoebus is actually the one that kind of turns to Quasimodo and realizes like, oh, shit, we're totally third wheeling this guy and kind of invites him to come along. So eventually Esmeralda is caught. She is convicted of being a witch and she is sentenced to be burned at the stake. And Frollo goes up to her with the flame for the last time saying, choose me or fire. nothing like threatening to burn a woman alive to make her fall in love with you nothing like it i mean i'd be like mother may i get me off this stake and jump those bones i know so of course then quasimodo and the gargoyles save the day phoebus comes in and saves the day it's happily ever after for everybody involved my big problem with this film is that Esmeralda is constantly fighting for her autonomy and for her individuality. And while Frollo and Quasimodo especially treat her very badly, I would say, and I don't want, I don't mean to say Quasimodo treats her badly, just is a very unrealistic expectation of, of a woman that he's put on her. And it's just very not fair. But one thing about Phoebus that I really respect is that he genuinely cares about her He genuinely cares about her people and the cause and wants to help her. Um, But at the same time, like you said earlier, this idea that she has to end up with anybody at all is so silly. I would have loved to have seen Esmeralda go off on her own with her people, find a new place or whatever, whatever they need to do. And it begs the question from Phoebus's point of view. You know, he was sent there and I believe, you know, again, I haven't watched the movie in a while, but I believe with the full intention of helping to rid the city of Roma people. He did. Yeah, he went in to be a soldier. Exactly. So if he had not met hot girl hot girl that I want to fuck, if he had not met her, would he have given a shit about her cause or her people or anything? Like, so while I think that what he did is admirable in the movie, I question his motives. Um. That is a great point. (laughs) And I wish I could talk, I took so many notes about like the original Esmeralda in the story because it's so fascinating, but I knew I wouldn't be able to get into all of it. But if you're interested in old fairy tales at all, like go and just like read the Wikipedia page because it's so 
fascinating. This story especially is just has so many like feminist ties to it, even though Victor Hugo was such a dick. You know, they talk about witchcraft and sex work and uh, marginalized people and how they're treated. And it's really a fascinating, great story if you don't know the original. Yeah, uh, absolutely, Madigan. Thank you so much for doing that. She is You're so one welcome. Of my very favorite Disney characters, and that is one of my favorite Disney movies of all time. I really want to go watch it now. Do it. Uh, rewatch it. My Maybe parents, Anthony, watch it when you're out of town this weekend. I, I I was actually thinking that I was like, it'd be a nice like cabin movie. You totally. know. Um, my parents had a like coffee table book that was like the art of the movie. That's so where cool. it was just like you know. Um, kind of like the stages that they went through to draw animation and things like that. Yeah. Which was really, really, really neat. Yeah. Um, Well, I wrote my notes slightly differently than you wrote yours, but you know, no, it's not right. You have to write yours exactly (laughs) like mine. Stop everything. I was going to say, go read your notes. Come back to me in an hour. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I am going to be talking about Moana, the (gasps) most badass Disney princess. Maybe of all time. So to kind of like start this off, Moana came out in November of 2016. And that was it was literally weeks after the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think we were all I mean, well, we started the idea for this podcast immediately after that. And I think that all of us collectively as a nation, uh, but especially women, were in desperate need of some good news in the form of not only female empowerment, but also non-white representation. Because yeah. the election of Donald Trump, um, I know that a, a lot of marginalized people, myself included, felt terrified and really, really sad. And this movie was kind of like a bright spot. And while it would have meant something different had Hillary Clinton been elected, you right. know, it would have been this kind of very joyous celebratory thing, um, it was still just this perfect timing it was just yeah. perfect timing really quick like sidebar this. have you heard philippa sue sing um how far i'll go like the no. like early versions of it oh my god i love it so you know everybody who listens knows that keegan and i love hamilton and lin-manuel miranda did the writing of the music for this and so he was working on it as he was in hamilton so he would have some of the cast members like sing the songs and i found philippa sue love singing it. how far i'll go Ugh, so good it's such a beautiful song. I love doing that song. Um, like if you're doing like a Disney karaoke night, that's yep. a perfect anthem. Um, and like I said, I didn't do my notes exactly like yours in that I didn't do a kind of play by play recap of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just kind of more talking about Moana as a character and Go for it. why we why we like and respect this lady. Yeah. So this movie kind of came out on the heels of other kind of progressive, more progressive, more feminist Disney movies like Brave and Frozen. Um, And Princess and the Frog. Right. Well, Which I guess was way before that. It was. um, Princess and the Frog, I think, was like 2010 or I think I remember it was it was right around the time that I moved to L.A., because I watched yeah. it on Netflix a lot. <laughs> yeah, I want to say it was like 2009, I think, is when it came out. Because I was like 19, I think. Um, yeah. Princess and the Frog. And Princess and the Frog is great. I mean, we could do a whole episode on Princess and the Frog. Um, but, you know, 
a lot of people in the black community had issues. Had well, yeah, issues. she's she's a frog the whole time. Exactly. Exactly. You so know, it it's was, like, is it representation? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, it is. And it was cool to see this, um, especially like my family being from Louisiana, Princess and the Frog. It was cool to see this, um, you know, Louisiana, New Orleans representation. Black culture was cool. But I do have issues with that movie. (laughs) Even though it's one of my favorite Disney movies. Don't get me wrong. I love that movie. I think it's underrated. Yes. Oh, very much so. In my opinion, um, Moana is probably the most feminist new age Disney princess. Yeah. So, for those of you who have not seen the movie, first of all, what are you doing? Like, immediately. (laughs) That movie made me cry, like, full tears. Yeah. Actually, that last bit, not the very, very end, I don't want to ruin anything for anyone, but there's a song where she's with Tafiti, and, like, I cry every time I watch that. I'm a fully grown woman. So um, Moana is a fearless 16-year-old. She was different um, as a Disney princess, not only because she was a Disney princess of color and she has distinctly non-Caucasian features. Yeah. Because I do feel like oftentimes, even with like Esmeralda, although she has brown skin, um, she has... Oh, and Tiana too. Tiana has a bit of a wider nose. They gave her like a little bit of a wider nose, but... Moana has very non-Caucasian features. Right. And her body itself is also very, not only represent, uh, representative, represent, what? representative, yeah. That's right, right? Okay. Representative, yeah. Of her culture, uh, but also it's just more of a realistic body type. Yeah, especially for a young woman. You know, the way that Disney draws their princesses, I always think of the Little Mermaid first and foremost because she's not wearing much. You know, they draw them with this extreme hourglass Right, her waist is literally 12 inches around. It's nothing. And Moana is drawn very much as like, you know, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl, you know, just... Not necessarily, she doesn't have womanly hips or anything like that. She looks like a 16-year-old girl. Right. She's got, like, arms. (laughs) She's got a waist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And I didn't write this down, but it's sticking in my brain, so I'm just going to bring it up. While I was doing prep for this episode, there was some conservative woman who was saying that feminism is ruining Disney and that Moana's body type is not good for young girls because it displayed an unhealthy body type which as we know uh, Moana is not unhealthy at all no. throughout the film uh, she's very fit in fact um, and, well, and that's cons- probably why she doesn't have like a dainty figure like she lives on an island where she has to do a lot of work she's not like a Disney princess that just lays around and is waited on like she is active and that's probably why she has a more muscular figure so whatever this woman or whoever is saying It's so full of shit. And I hate, 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 hate that people say that so often to the body positive movement. It's like, why are you, you know, encouraging people to be unhealthy? And it's like, it's not. You cannot look at a person and say if they're unhealthy. And determine their their health. That's right. But I mean, she completely undermined her entire point when following that, she said it would also limit girls' ability to get married in the future. Oh. I'm like, bitch, <laughs> it's a 21st century. You're going to need to simmer down. Yeah. Um, okay, boomer. Right. Exactly. Right. So in addition to those things, 
Although Moana is also technically a princess, since she is the daughter of the chief, she doesn't appreciate being called one. Many times throughout the film, she says to um, Maui, many times throughout the film, she says to Maui that she doesn't like him calling her a princess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, more than that, she is a chief in her own right. Everyone around her, she grows up with the understanding that she will someday lead her people and everyone on the island of of Montanui seem to believe that she's fully capable of leading them. There is very no, much like, so. There there is none of this messaging that's saying you are incapable because you are a woman. That's never right. that's adjust, adjust. And it's and it's interesting because and I know you're gonna get to this next, but that's the whole point of Moana's character is you know that she's kind of been born into this status but she doesn't she doesn't know who she is yet. She doesn't know what she wants yet. You know, and that's kind of right. the whole beautiful story. Yes. The only thing that she knows that she wants um, because she loves her people. She loves her island. It's not as if she wants to leave and abandon them at all. Right. But she feels a calling from the ocean from the time that she's a little. That's the first scene is she's this little baby yeah. um, playing with the ocean. And um, so she knows that she has this kind of greater calling. And it's not until later in the movie that that calling is kind of like revealed to her. Right. And once that calling is revealed to her, um, it's very clear kind of what what she has to do right? right and and then she doesn't hesitate she kind of gets into it with her dad who does not want I was her gonna say to go. I mean she doesn't hesitate but her family is very much against it I mean her father is very much against it right. and her mother kind of remains very quiet but um so let's get into it so I found this from girlmuseum.org so I found this and it's five reasons Moana is an unapologetic feminist film one it has an incredibly powerful and self-reliant female lead which is something that we've kind of touched on already so not only does she not need a man um, she does what men including her father and Maui in the film um, fear to do so this is a mix between stuff I've grabbed from that website and also my own notes yeah um she also sets to sea all by herself with nothing but a dumb chicken for company. My and God, that <laughs> dumb chicken. Yeah. I like the pig so much better. I do too. I wish the pig had been in it more. To I honest. know. I'm like, get rid of the chicken. That's my only, that's my only fault. Critique. The film. Yeah. And the, and I don't like the, the crab song. I don't mind the crab song. It's not my favorite, but I don't mind it. Mm. Um, But, I mean, she just has this blind faith in her destiny. She knows that she is, even though, you know, she's not without any fear, she has a certain amount of apprehension, but she knows that she's capable of doing this thing. Right. Right. And she's not relying on really anybody else to make it happen. Like, she does go to Maui because she needs him in order to accomplish this task, uh, but she never asks him to do anything for her or save her. Throughout the film. Um, Two, it is the only Disney princess movie not to have a love interest, which is a huge step forward for Disney. What about Brave, though? Um, Brave, it didn't have a direct love interest, but it was centered around her getting married. That's true. That was kind of a tension point. um, And she was kind of introduced to a a group of suitors. That wasn't even on the table for this movie. It had nothing to do um, with marriage or princes. There is no romantic subplot at all. Thank goodness, because Maui and Moana together. uh Uh-uh. Yikes. 
Um, it's it's her love for her island and her people and her family that is kind of the central theme of this film. Three, Moana has strong bonds with other women in her life, primarily her mother and grandmother. So we talked about this in our Disney Problematic Faves episode, um, talking about how very often mothers or grandmothers will be kind of like killed off, eliminated from the story, or there will be, as we talked about in our villains episode, a very unhealthy, complicated rivalry relationship between a mother and like a step uh, or a stepmother and like a, a daughter, daughter kind of situation. They oftentimes like pit women against each other as we see just in general in our society. Right. But here we have female relationships that allow Moana to do this incredible thing and go and and save her people. So while her father does forbid her from going, her mother, while she's very quiet, kind of when her when the father is like saying, right, you, you can't do this. She does end up actually helping Moana pack because she catches her and then she helps her pack. And then the spirit of her grandmother is what guides her across the reef um, mm-hmm. later on in in the film, which is another kind of like tear jerky moment. I know. I'm like, why would you have to bring it up now? Right. But it's it's great because it's like she has these beautiful relationships with the women in her life. Yeah. And it's a testament to how powerful female relationships can be. Well, right. And it's the it's the two people that seem to be, you know, if not actively encouraging her, you know, maybe in some ways still nudging her toward, you know, being defiant against her father and doing the thing that she loves to do, which you really don't see very often in Disney movies at all, seeing the parent kind of encourage the child to go on this crazy adventure. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, what it says to me is that her mother loves her. She doesn't want anything bad to happen to her, but she also believes in her. She knows what she's capable of, and she believes in her daughter. And that is a really powerful message to send. Um, The fourth thing on this list we've already talked about, which is that... um, Moana's figure is more realistic, which is super great. Um, Being more accessible, having a more accessible figure, it just helps to minimize negative effects um, of having not only this unattainable size, but also this unattainable size on mostly a white catalog of bodies. Right, yeah. And like I said earlier, number five, Moana is not just a princess. She is a queen, a leader in her own right. Not only will she become chief of her island one day, but she actively leaves the island to save it when others are afraid. And ultimately, she returns her people to their original way of life as voyagers. So. Yeah, she's really, and um, I'll talk about it a little bit later when I talk about some of the critiques in this film, but the story was kind of birthed from, there was like a 2,000 year period, I guess, uh, that historians can't account for where Polynesian people, I don't know of what region, so I don't want to be super specific, um, they stopped voyaging for Mm -hmm. like 2,000 years and then began voyaging again and no one really knows what what spurred them to begin voyaging again. And so when they were writing this film, they reimagined it as like, what if it was a 16-year-old girl? girl. Yeah. Yeah. So it it is kind of a neat idea. That is cool. So some other positives about the film itself. Um, This film did a better job of depicting indigenous people and people of color than Disney had really ever done in the past. 
uh, in the past. So John Musker and Ron Clements, who are the writer-director team responsible for this movie, they were also responsible for a lot of other movies. Um, I think they also did Aladdin. And their prep for Aladdin was to go to the Saudi Arabia convention here in Los Angeles. That was oh, their prep. No. Whereas their prep for Moana was to actually um, take many trips around Polynesia, interviewing elders and community members from Samoa to Tahiti and Fiji, uh, as well as uh, Hawaii and other places. So, so much it is, better than going to a convention in LA. Oh my yes, gosh. Yes. There was also Taika Waititi, who is the director and plays Hitler in Jojo yep. Rabbit. He, he's amazing. I went and saw a screening of Jojo Rabbit and he was there get, doing talkbacks and he is one of the most charismatic, yeah. charming people I've what is ever the seen. Sh- I can't remember the name of the show, but he's a vampire. It was a documentary yes. originally and it's so, I've only, I haven't seen the show, I've just seen the documentary. Or, yeah, it's I not believe, a documentary, a mockumentary. It's so good. I believe good. Jermaine Clement, who plays the voice of the crab, is from Flight of the Concords, and I think he's also in that. What We Do in the Shadows. That's what yes, it is. Yes, What We Do in the Shadows. He is in that. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's so, so funny. Taika Waititi is half Maori. He's from New Zealand. His father is Maori, and he wrote the initial screenplay that screen for of Moana. That screenplay was, of course, taken and changed completely, but right. he did write the initial screenplay. Um, it's also Disney's first film about Pacific Islanders that stars Pacific Islanders. So there's um, Ali'i Cravalho. Gosh, I watched like four YouTube videos to make sure I'm saying that correctly. Oh, right. Uh, who plays Moana, voices Moana. Dwayne Johnson, uh, who voices Maori. And then you also have um, Tamura Morrison and Rachel House and Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, all of whom are of Polynesian descent or Pacific Islander descent. So yeah. that's really, really cool that mm-hmm. even though they were like, yeah, we know that we're just, there's, it's just voices. Yeah. I feel like oftentimes they're like, it doesn't matter. It's They're just voices. Who cares? But it and is like, so important. And what's so cool about the girl that got the role of Moana is that like they were just going to like schools. Mm-hmm. And I guess she performed in some concert or something at school and they saw her and loved her. And now she's like a working actress. It's a right. really amazing yeah. story. She's she's amazing. Yeah. She's, she's incredibly she's, talented and she's beautiful. I was going to say she's so adorable. Yeah. She yeah. looks she looks like Moana. She's got like the big eyes and the beautiful yes. hair. Oh, girl. I'm sure that they probably used her somewhat um, when they were drawing Moana. It's the same thing for the woman who voices Pocahontas. She's also Native American, and they used yeah. her a little bit as a model for Pocahontas as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it matters. It matters because these people are going to bring a specific voice, um, not just just in their actual voice, but also just a lived experience to these right. roles. Well, um, and that's that the thing about people wouldn't. Yeah, and that's the thing about voice acting that I think people don't understand is that while you are just reading words off a of paper, just like, you know, you would when you're an actor as well, you have to still put feeling behind it. There has to be something behind your words. It still takes a very great actor to portray, you know, a great oh, yeah. animated role. And so having the authenticity is so important. I mean, Esmeralda was voiced by Demi Moore. Right. You know what I mean? Like, she can't put anything behind that. I mean, luckily, Esmeralda was still such an iconic character. But imagine, you know, because to this day, the Roma people are treated horribly, you know. So to have somebody that has that understanding and that background just brings something extra to it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in this day and age, 
it just helps the authenticity and uh, that makes people want to see the movie even more too. Right. I mean, and, and kind of in addition to all of that, also just give these people parts. Yeah. Okay. Because it's, it's so much harder when you aren't a white person as an actor to get roles, just period. And so when roles that are about you or about your people don't go to your people, um, it just, it, limits the amount of work that's available even further. So yeah. I'm it, it is kind of like hats off to them for having done that. 100%. Um, the script borrows from myths and traditions vetted by a coalition of cultural experts dubbed the Oceanic Story Trust, uh, while Oceanic musician o- Opetaya, I don't know how to say her name, Opa, I did not look at YouTube videos. <laughs> Opataya um, Fwai collaborated with Lin-Manuel Miranda and composer Mark Mancina on the score. So they had input from, you know, people within the community all the way down the line. And Good. they spent a, they spent five years working on this, like kind of doing the background. They did their first trips to Hawaii in 2011. So Wow. Yeah. So Moana, uh, and this is from BBC.com, Moana and all the Disney princesses that have come before her reflect changing attitudes in the U.S. towards race, gender, and the treatment of minorities. And I think that that's true. I mean, you we talk about this a lot when we talk about Disney movies. You can kind of, not kind of, you can totally track uh, the <laughs> progression of America. Yeah. Just looking at the Disney princesses will tell you a lot about where we are as a nation. And Moana, you know, not just her as a character, but the story and the movie as a whole really did kind of document how much, how much further we've come. Yeah, definitely. Now I do want to just touch very quickly on some criticism. Um, Because there is some, of course, there is some, and it is valid, actually. So I read an article from Movie Guru, uh, MovieTime.Guru, and I have his name in here somewhere, so I'll find it. But he is a um, a Pacific Islander man, and he had some beef with the film. So he says, Moana came out of a sort of fantasy of how Polynesian voyaging got started. So like I said, it was kind of this idea that um, they took this 2,000-year hiatus and then it was Moana who brought voyaging back to these people. Right. And, and therefore would make Moana the founding ancestor of Polynesian peoples. But this honor in most Polynesian societies actually belongs to Maui, who is this kind of bumbling idiot sidekick in the movie. Oh. And that is offensive <laughs> to yeah. a lot of Polynesian people um, because it's a very real living religion yeah. in you know certain areas of the world and to see him kind of displayed as this americanized macho bumbling fool right. um throughout much of the film a lot of people found that to be displacing actual polynesian histories and mythologies because yeah. there be a lot of people who don't know real polynesian mythology who just think right me too yeah um, like i wouldn't know but I mean, you and I, at least, I, f- I feel like would be critical enough to know that like this cartoon is not necessarily a representation of the demigod Maui. Well, but there right. will be some people who don't look at it any further than that. That's you so know? stupid. Yeah. 
Um, He goes on to say, even as the filmmakers invent a feminist heroine in Moana, they simultaneously debase an actually existing feminist heroine in Tefiti, the so-called Lava Witch, a cinematic ripoff of the fire goddess Pele um, from Hawaiian mythology. Even as they depict the finest parts of Polynesian iconography from the Hawaiian hula to Maori haka, they transform Maui from a cultural hero to an American jerk. So you have Tefiti and Maui both of whom are kind of important yeah, in and real culture. Yeah, in the real story. Right. And so he kind of um, closes it by saying, yet for all of Moana's merits as a feminist heroine, as a Polynesian, Moana itself collapses into the same old tired tropes as films like Pocahontas. Think about it this way. The writing team of eight included only one woman. Just as white writers defined the indigenous experience in Pocahontas, men are writing and defining the latest feminist hero in Moana. Yeah. So there's that. And then the only other thing that I have, I'm not going to go into all of it because I wrote a lot of notes. Um, But there is a lot of criticism around this kind of message that Moana is sending about protecting the earth and protecting um, Hawaii. Yeah. In particular, Polynesian um, uh, land in particular, while at the same time, we have the Disney resort Aulani in Hawaii. Yeah. That is draining resources from um, native people on mm. the other side of the island because Aulani is using a lot of water to... Yeah. Um, water all of their golf courses and that is water that people on the other side of the island actually need for their crops so there's been a lot of issues with this kind of symbolic performative messaging totally um while at the same time not following through yeah that's shady as fuck it it is you know and you know anytime i talk about disney i have to talk about it as a two-sided coin it's something that brings me a lot of joy and happiness while at the same time understanding that they are a giant corporation um whose interests are not necessarily pure yeah (laughs) most of the time but i will say that i still think that moana i'm so happy that young girls get to grow up with this kind of fierce, wonderful character without, like, for us, we got to grow up with the fierce, wonderful character of Esmeralda, who is fantastic and amazing as a character. But we had it in the package of, also, these men are fucking terrible. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whereas we get Moana, who just gets to be a 16-year-old girl, (laughs) you know, who is fierce and independent and strong. Yeah, exactly. Which is well, and the ages, you know, we've brought up that many times when we talk about, you know, Disney problematic faves. And Esmeralda and Moana are both supposed to be 16. Right. And Moana seems like a 16 year old, and Esmeralda does not. Does not at all seem like a 16 year old girl, nor is she drawn like one. You know what I mean? So there is this very differing ideas of womanhood and femininity and, you know, what it means to harness your own, you know, power as a woman and things like that. They're both just some of my favorites. I immediately always go to the ones that I gravitated toward as a kid. I didn't even think of Moana, but I love that movie so much. I love love that girl the mo- this music is so good mm. 
It's amazing. I mean, I could watch that. I could watch Moana a, a shit ton. Like, it's such a yeah. good movie. I mean, and same. It's so funny because they're like polar opposites as far as like vibes um, in Disney movies. Yeah. Because Hunchback of Notre Dame is so dark and Moana is kind of like happy and bright. Yeah. Um, not the whole time, but most of the time. Right. But I love them both so much. Like, so I, much. I, they're just incredible films, both of them. So. Yeah. And Hercules is another one that's one of my favorite Disney movies. I love that, I that movie watch too. Over and over again. And I just love Meg. So I've got to talk about her at some point. Yeah, she's we'll just like, Ugh. do that another time. But yeah, Meg is wonderful. And I, I do think, not that we're talking about Meg, but I do think that Meg is an example of that kind of middle. Meg and Mulan were in that kind of like middle phase and Pocahontas yep. where it's like we're moving into in a more progressive space. We're moving in, in a direction yeah, get, where women have ready. more agency. Yeah. Yeah, for exactly. sure. Oh, well, that totally came with the 90s, too. So yeah. of the times. Oh, well, we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. We really enjoyed uh, doing the research for this because everything has been so awful in the world. So focusing on some Disney and especially non-problematic Disney, things that, you know, actually fueled our childhoods or fueled our lives in some way with something positive. Uh, if you have any ideas or if you just want to share your favorite non-problematic Disney character, you can go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at Yamp Podcast. Y A N F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it so much when you do, and you'll be featured on Reviews Day Tuesday on our Instagram page. And last but not least, if you don't already, please go listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free way for you to listen, and it helps us out just a little bit. All right, Keegan, with all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.